0: Welcome to Bite Size Human Geography, a podcast meant for students, their parents, and anyone who wants a better understanding of the world. We investigate global issues using human geography concepts. It's human geography made simple. Hello and welcome. My name is Kara Smart and I'm so happy that you're here with me today. Today we're going to be discussing economic and political geography and we're going to be zooming in on China because obviously that's when it's in the news right now with the coronavirus. A lot of uh, my students have asked me, Mrs. Smart, what do you think is going to happen with our relationship with China? And I, I really think it's a, it's a question that we need to delve into. Uh, and the main, I think the main concern is, is how are things going to change with regards to uh, the political relationship and the economic relationship that the globe has with China? Currently, $2.5 trillion worth of goods are being traded with China every single year, And this virus really has staggering political, uh, geopolitical and economic implications. So let's get started. There's a lot to talk about today. Before we talk about where we're going, we really have to address where we've been. So I want to give a little bit of background information with regards to how China ended up becoming the the huge economic power that it is today and the, the geopolitical influence that it has on the planet. So especially for those of you that weren't around during this time, and if you weren't around when friends was being made, then you don't have any knowledge of when this transition began to occur. But for those of you that are my age, you remember a time Uh, before all of the plentiful stuff that we have in our stores and disposable dishwashers and that kind of thing. So bear with me while I give a little background information. My students often ask me, you know, why is China so powerful? And we really kind of have to begin with the realization, and this is all of us, that we all like cheap stuff. It doesn't make a difference, uh, you know, what level of of, socioeconomic background you have uh, or how much money you have for the most part we all like a bargain and the thing that the chinese have done really really well for the planet is produce items that can be sold for a bargain whether it's you know clothing or shoes or uh, like i mentioned earlier uh, dishwashers and and um, you know laundry machine uh, washing machines i remember you know growing up as a kid we had a refrigerator that lasted for 20 years and or a washing machine for lasted that long as well but now it seems as though everything is disposable and that's part of how the uh, economy is designed now it's designed with disposability whether it's fashion or shoes or anything else in mind it's not necessarily about quality anymore it's about producing items that can be sold F- produced for and relatively uh, produced relatively cheap and sold uh, cheap as well to produce profits for companies and also for you as a consumer to make uh, your purchasing decisions a little bit easier for you. So, you know, globalization is the term that we often use. And and globalization is when you have this economic and political relationship between countries. Uh, And we tend to to plot globalization right around the time of the early 90s. So when I talked about friends, uh, that's kind of the the launchpad of globalization. But honestly, the planet's been globalized for forever. If you go back and you look at the Roman Empire or even the Greek empire, or you look at the Mongols, or, um, you know, maybe the connection between the, the first Silk Road with China. The, the the planet has always been globalized, but never to the extent that it's globalized today. And then in the early 1990s, a shift began to occur that connected the world as never before. Uh, in the 90s, Deng Xiaoping, who was the uh, leader of China, he began to open up Uh, China uh, to what are called SEZs. SEZs are special economic zones, and these are kind of magical play areas for businesses where just about anything can happen, whether it's reduced taxes or very little environmental regulations. Uh, these were places that were designed to um, encourage growth from outside of China to have investors come in, companies come in and set up shop and begin producing things. And uh, so for companies, it was a great it was great because you could pay your employees very little. Of course, the, the average you know minimum wage in China was at that time was just about nothing pennies on the dollar. Um, and so you can make a nice little profit for your company and you could produce items cheaper and sell them cheaper at places like Walmart or dollar store or whatever. And so we began to see as a society that shift to, you know, from made in the USA or made in Mexico or Canada to made in China. And, and you guys know this, just about everything that you, you know, pick up something right around you right now. And it was probably made in China. So there were some criticisms of this, of course, uh, the first of which is, and we know of this now, these work camps that were created were either they were political prisoners um, or they were just terrible, terrible situations. No worker rights at all. The thought of having a union, of course, in a communist country. And please don't forget that, that China is ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. It's communist. Uh, There are no worker rights. There's no environmental regulations. So uh, what we ended up doing was basically outsourcing our manufacturing capability as well as our pollution to different areas on the planet. Uh, I mean, if you were to just Google image search, uh, you know, water pollution in China, you'd be horrified at what you would see, that the environmental regulations there are just not uh, what you would see in Europe or in the United States. But, you know, the reality is, is that this setup, this SEZ setup really created Um, uh, a booming global economy, and it it increased the standard of living in China It brought a a billion people out or half a billion people out of uh, poverty in China. And that's no small feat. So let's look at the data. I went ahead and I pulled some data from the United States Census Bureau. And it's the same census that you all need to complete your census forms. Actually, they probably have hit your mailboxes uh, this week. Uh, It's the same census uh, that you guys know about for taking the census of the people of the United States, but it also is this wonderful clearinghouse of all kinds of awesome data. And I went ahead and put a link in the show notes for you for that. So I went back, it goes back all the way to 1995. And what I looked for was uh, data concerning the United States trade with China. This would be inflows or or exports from China to the United States. So starting in 1985, we had $3.8 billion in imports from China. Moving forward to 1995, so just 10 years later, we were up to $45 billion in imports from China. Moving forward another 10 years to 2005, and you can see this is where the the huge jump begins to occur, we had $243 billion in imports from China. Moving forward another 10 years to 2015, $483 billion in imports in China. And then finally the last uh, measure of data that we have uh, on the Census Bureau for this was 2019. And 2019 it decreased a little bit. It was 2 I'm sorry, 452 billion dollars worth of imports. So it's about 31 billion less than in 2015. And this is where you begin to see the impact of those tariffs uh, that were put into place on China uh, for unfair trade practices. You can begin to see the impact of this, right? Um, and so what's what you're seeing with this, with this reduced amount of, of trade coming in from China, and it's still $31 billion that we're talking about here. This is either companies that are reshoring, so they're, they're moving their manufacturing facilities back to the United States, or they are finding alternative places to go. Uh, Vietnam happens to be a, 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 one of the main places, especially for manufacturing of shoes, you know, backpacks, clothing, as a matter of fact, go ahead and take off your shoes right now, unless you're wearing something like Birkenstocks, which we know are made in Germany. Uh, take a look at your shoes. If you're wearing tennis shoes or sneakers, however you call them, they were probably made in Vietnam. And a lot of facilities started moving over to Vietnam several years ago. Could be in Indonesia uh, if you're, you know, your shirts and whatever might be being produced in Bangladesh. Uh, so it really depends upon the product where it's going to be produced. But a lot of companies are already beginning to make this transition, and part of the reason why they're making this transition is because China is enjoying an increased standard of living due to globalization, due to all those companies that are bringing in trade to gigantic megacities like Shenzhen or Guangzhou. And uh, so it's because it was becoming more expensive for them to do business. They had to pay their employees more. And so they started off, they started removing their manufacturing facilities from China already. Uh, but the tariffs just uh, began to accelerate That process. Okay, so that's your economic background. I'm going to give you a a minute or two. Go ahead and pause this podcast for a second. Of course, if you're driving, you can't pause it. But if you're at home or you're somewhere close by to where you could pull up Google Maps, I want to give you a second to go ahead and pull up Google Maps and uh, go ahead and Google China. I want you to, you can go just go to maps.google.com or if you are on your phone, uh, hopefully you have uh, the Google Maps app um, Google it and just put China in there. And then we're going to, I'm going to take, have you investigate some regions because we're going to need that map to look at some areas like the South China Sea. All right. Now, let me give you a little bit of political background. We're not going to go so far back to the dynasties, uh, but I do want to start right around the time where uh, the civil war with the CCP, the the Chinese Communist Party, and the nationalists. So back in 1949, um, Mao Zedong established the, the PRC, the People's Republic of China, or you could call it the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, this happened after the end of the Civil War with the Nationalists. Chiang Kai-shek, who was the ruler of the Nationalists, they went and they um, ended up setting up shop on the island of Taiwan, which is southeast. So if you want to pull up your map, uh, it's to the southeast of China. It's a tiny little island. Uh, so during this time of civil war, it led to tremendous death and destruction. And of course, after the civil war, same thing, communist governments, as we know, don't really have a history of being able to feed its citizenry very well. And so you had, uh, you know, millions of people die during, uh, of starvation during this time when they collectivized farms. Basically what they did is they took over farms and they said, Hey, you know, I know this is farm has been in your family for generations, but we're going to control it now. And they put in their party politicos, their, uh, you know, political, well-connected to, to try and run these farms. And of course, when you have political people trying to run farms, what you get is starvation. So uh, you had mismanagement, you had paranoia on the part of Mao. Uh, he killed many of his enemies. And, and once again, this is just kind of a textbook illustration in how communist parties run Taiwan, for the most part, so Chiang Kai-shek uh, went to Taiwan, for the most part, uh, the, the Taiwan was supported by the West during this time because uh, during the Cold War, uh, the United States and the West were uh, at odds. With communism, and so it makes sense, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and so that's why the Taiwan uh, Taiwanese government received quite a bit of support and recognition from the United States. So during the 1970s, Richard Nixon began to usher in an area, an era of of what's called détente, which is basically like a warming of relations, a relationship with uh, another country, and uh, the reason why he did this is because he saw that if we could trade with China, then maybe we might be able to leverage that relationship in trying to control the Soviet Union. And also uh, there's kind of an old adage that countries that trade together don't want to necessarily blow each other up. So uh, there was that thought. And then in the late 1970s, in 1979, as a matter of fact, uh, President Carter uh, basically delegitimized or severed relations with Taiwan. Uh, and the reason for this is kind of the same thing, uh, the reason why Nixon uh, began to open up uh, the United States to China, is that they, you had uh, companies that began to see the benefit of trying to produce goods in China transportation methods were beginning to decrease in cost. You had the rise of containerization of uh, like cargo ships, uh, containerization. And so it made shipping cheaper. And so if you could have your shipping cheaper, and if you could have your uh, manufacturing capabilities cheaper, then it made sense to try and, and have your businesses go overseas. So we severed relationship with Taiwan, but it was kind of weird. And most countries followed followed suit. But it's strange because we still, to this day, we still sell arms to Taiwan. We sell all kinds of military weapons to Taiwan, and every now and again, our military passes through the Straits of Taiwan, as a way of, I don't know, uh, giving the finger to China, the proverbial finger to China, uh, to say, you know, we kind of have your eyes on you, because the relationship with China and Taiwan is contentious at best, and um, so the United States still offers support to Taiwan, but we don't officially recognize them, and. As a matter of fact, there are only 19 countries on the planet right now that officially recognize Taiwan. You know, Guatemala is one. And and really, it's kind of like most Caribbean countries and some Pacific countries. Uh, The Vatican is another uh, state, because remember, the Vatican is a state that recognizes Taiwan. But for the most part, most countries don't. They trade with them a ton, uh, but they don't officially recognize them because they just don't want to make China angry. Okay, so now I want you to go back to Google Maps. I'm going to do the same thing as I'm uh, talking to you here. I want you to go to maps.google.com or use your app on your phone. And I want you to put in there the South China Sea. And we're going to give it a second to pull up. And uh, as you zoom in to the South China Sea, first of all, look at the relationship between the countries here. You see China in the northwest. You see Taiwan to the northeast in the South China Sea. Vietnam to the west, the Philippines, and then as you move further south, you have Indonesia and Brunei. Um, And look at basically the countries that are surrounding uh, the perimeter of the South China Sea. Now I want you to zoom in a little bit. And look at the different island chains that are are around there. There's the Spratly Islands, and then there's the Paracel Islands. These are islands that, for the most part, are just coral reefs. So there's not much there. They're just uh, really kind of a series of archipelagos with different reefs. No one's really claimed them until recently. This is an incredibly important uh, geopolitical, uh, geoeconomic region. Five trillion dollars worth of trade for here through this particular region every year and go ahead and zoom out again. I want you to go find Singapore uh, in the south so you can see Malaysia and then you can see Singapore at the tip of Malaysia. Uh, if you were to keep on zooming in this is what I, an exercise I normally do with my students and then if you if you're on a desktop this is even better but I'm pretty sure you can do this on your phone as well. Click on the satellite function zooming into Singapore. Singapore is really in an amazing area with regards to its situation or its relationship between other regions. If you keep zooming in basically to the extent um, that you, you've you kind of maxed out the zooming in feature, what you'll see in Singapore uh, Strait or Singapore Bay there is basically, they look like ants, but they're not ants. They're just tons of thousands of tanker vessels and cargo shipping vessels. And this is where that, that $5 trillion number that I was telling you just a second ago comes from. This whole region basically acts as a, a conduit for global trade. And it ha- most of it has to pass through the South China Sea to get to the United States and to get to a good chunk of the rest of the world, simply because of the physical geography of the region. Because if you were to zoom out once again, and bear with me, zoom out, take a look at the physical geography here. You have a lot of different island chains in the region, and it just makes it a bit more challenging for these cargo vessels to pass through. So go back and look at the South China Sea again, or maybe you're tired of looking at the map, but let me just kind of tell you what's there. In addition to the passage of these container vessels and um, tanker vessels. You also have uh, fishing and mining um, rights and oil rights that are up for grabs here. At, at some, some estimates call for up to 10 billion or even more barrels of oil uh, that are located in this particular region. So China has claimed this region for quite a while, or they they say they do. They say that they have an historic claim to it, and they use uh, what's called the Nine-Dash Line, which is a document that's about 70 years old, um, to make that claim. So now what I want you to do is I want you to Google image search the Spratly Islands, and you'll see. Um, are some islands that are basically being created out of nothing this is uh, back to that archipelago that I was telling you about those reefs what the Chinese are doing is they're using their dredging equipment that they use to build these amazing airports off of their uh, coastal cities Uh, which are kind of common for a lot of of coastal regions that they can build these airports that are off the coast. But they take this dredging equipment and what they're doing is they're making, for the most part, inhabitable islands out of nothing that was there before. And uh, if you look at some of the images here, you can see very clearly that these are really more military installations than anything else. The runways that they're building are meant for uh, military planes. You could tell by the size of the runway. Um, and so that's pretty much what they're doing there. And, and you guys you may know the expression that uh, possession is nine-tenths of the law. The thought for the Chinese, or I mean, I can't say to know what they think, but it's obvious by what they're doing. Uh, if you look at their actions, they're trying to stake a claim there. And what they want to do uh, is they want to use the law of the sea or uh, unclosed un- United States Conference on the Law of the Sea, which basically says that uh, 200 nautical miles out, For a country from its coastline, so from 200 from its coastline to 200 nautical miles out, a country can basically claim its its exclusive economic zone. So this is an area where they can control drilling rights and fishing rights. And so the thought is is that if the Chinese can control this area, if they've created an island, well, look, then I could get to control 200 nautical miles out from mainland China, and then 200 nautical miles out from the Spratly Islands. But if you if you look. 200 nautical miles out from the Spratly Islands, actually even less than that, you begin to hit some of the islands of the Philippines. And so the Philippines took uh, China to court. And in 2016, an international tribunal ruled actually in favor of the Philippines and said that China didn't have a historical claim to the region and that they needed to stop their island building. But the bottom line is, is uh, China kind of gave the international court and the international community really the proverbial finger um, and their response was just to keep doing what they were doing and to continue to build up their military presence and to continue to build up um, the islands there as well. Because the bottom line is is who's going to stop them. So you have uh, Japan, but Japan is for the most part demilitarized and has been since the end of World War II. And you have South Korea, um, North Korea is, of course, a, a Chinese ally and probably somebody would say a, a, maybe a, a puppet state of China, but that's a conversation for another story. But Korea uses the um, military umbrella of the United States as well. And so there's really nobody in the region that can compete or really go up against um, the Chinese government. So what you begin to see is kind of this continual look towards the United States to have a military presence in the region. And um, ASEAN, which is an organization that's kind of like the EU to a certain extent, or maybe like a NAFTA, it's a supranational organization of Southeast Asian countries. They've looked to the United States and they've been pretty open. Um, The prime minister of Singapore, as a matter of fact, said that ASEAN countries really welcome the United States presence in the region uh, because we help to keep those shipping lanes open. Uh, the entire existence of these economies um, depends upon the United States Navy to be in the region and to act as a, as a pushback or a, a presence against the uh, Chinese um, presence in the South China Sea and in the region itself. Okay, so I am looking at the clock and I have gone way, way too long here today. This is not becoming bite-sized human geography. It's like a meal of human geography. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to split this into two separate podcasts. So the next podcast, uh, what we'll do is we'll discuss the the possible outcomes of what we can see with regards to China and the impact of the coronavirus on a global scale and how countries are going to want to deal with China from here on out. So, Uh, Like always, I'm so glad you joined me here today, and I'm going to encourage you to please uh, click on the subscribe button of the podcast that you're using uh, to get all the latest updates as they happen. Feel free to email me at bitesizehumangeo at gmail.com with any questions that you'd like answered, and I just want you to remember that this is your show as much as mine. See you next time. Bye-bye.